0: Good morning everyone. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. If you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to go to the pew. It's page 1134. We're going to be going through this passage and you can follow along. I didn't have any fancy fancy slides, so you'll actually have to look either at your own phone or your Bible in order to follow along with the verses. Who remembers the uh, advertisements for Freedom 55? Some of the some of the older hands are going up. That's good. I didn't realize until this morning that they were actually a company. I thought it was a slogan, Freedom 55, that you can have freedom, financial freedom, by the time you're 55. But it's actually a company who's going to help you achieve that goal. And I, they have a great ad. It's from the 1990s, so it's got the same kind of campy feel that you have a lot of stuff from there. And there's a guy running after a bus in the winter with his suitcase. He's missed his bus. And all of a sudden, it flips, and he's on the beach. And he's jogging next to his 55-year-old future self, who's in great shape, and he's retired, and he's living the life, and he's got enough money to last his lifetime. And they're they're trying to tell you, look, we're going to help you have total freedom by the time you're 55. Maybe some people would remember the Lotto 649 commercials. These are even more on the nose in terms of freedom. They, they they start off, win the lottery, and then it quickly cuts to a picture. I don't know why this is the quintessential image of freedom, but it cuts to a picture of someone riding on a beach on a horse next to the surf. Like It seems like that's that's the idea most people have when they think of freedom. And then there's another image of a guy fly fishing in the river. And it just goes from image to image. There's a guy getting into a plane, which presumably is his own plane, because he's won the lottery and he gets to do whatever he wants. Our society is obsessed with freedom. We love this idea of freedom, being able to choose whatever we want to do. We've gone to the extremes with this, to the point where we now say, you can choose whether you're male or female. It doesn't matter how you were born. You get to decide whether or not you are, are going to be a male. Our passage today talks about freedom. And it doesn't, maybe you're wondering, as, as we just read about barbecues and all that other stuff, why it's talking about freedom. But I hope I'll make that clear as we go on. The Bible has some great things to say about freedom. And as with most things, when the gospel comes into a situation, it turns it right over. On its head, and shows us a completely radical and new way of thinking about these topics that we've thought about many times before, like freedom. So, just as a way of recap, because this uh, this passage, chapter 10 in 1 Corinthians, is actually the end of a three chapter little mini series uh, that Paul is doing on this idea of food being sacrificed to idols. And Russ. Was the one about four weeks ago before we started doing our mini Easter series, who opened the scriptures for chapters eight and nine, and today Paul closes off his argument about uh, freedom and idolatry in chapter ten. So, just as a, way, a quick way of summary, I'll remind you of some of the things that Russ said. He had a great sermon. You could listen to it on the website if you have some time. The specific issue that Paul was dealing here in terms of freedom was food sacrifice to idols. In that time, idols were prevalent. There was a God to everything, and many people would go, and uh, when you had a a lamb that was going to be led to the slaughter, when you were ready to kill the lamb to eat it, you would take it to the temple, offer it to an idol, and then the priest would get a bit, and you would get most of it, and this was your way of contributing to the, the temple worship, and you would get some meat. And so Paul is talking to people who live in this society where this is prevalent, and he's saying, well, what do you do if someone is selling this kind of meat in the marketplace? Can you eat this meat? Is it okay as a Christian who doesn't believe in idols? Is it okay to eat this meat? And in 1 Corinthians 8, Paul established two principles. First of all, he says, look, idols are nothing. There's no such thing as an idol. There's one true God, and that is Jesus Christ and his Father. This is, so idols, meat sacrificed to idols, who cares? It doesn't matter. It doesn't really matter when you're thinking about uh, idols because idols are actually nothing. And second, the second principle, lest you go off and say, well, then I can just do whatever I want. He says, idols are nothing, but love is far more important than knowing that you are not eating food sacrificed to idols. And you should think about that before you go off and you make someone else who perhaps has a weaker conscience than you sin by eating this food that they think they shouldn't eat. I remember, uh, just as a side note, there was a, a passage of scripture pasted on the fridge when I was a kid, and I think my mom put it there, and it was the 1 Corinthians 13 passage about love. And the only thing I remember from that passage was, well, I, I guess now I remember more because I have grown up and read it many times, but back then, the thing that stuck out to me was the verse on clanging symbols and noisy gongs. And probably as a 10-year-old, I thought, well, is she talking about herself? And like, is this way? I, I don't really get it. As I've grown up, I've realized that really she was the, the best example of love in my life. But this is Paul's point to the Corinthians. Love is the most important thing. You don't, it doesn't matter what you know. It doesn't matter what you can say. Love is the most important thing. Are you building up your brother by eating food sacrificed to idols, or are you tearing him down? That is the consideration you need to have. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul moved on and showed his, from his own example how he worked this out. And he goes into great length about how he has given up many of his rights so that he could lead others to Christ. He says, I don't care about any of this stuff. I'll, I'll do whatever it takes. I mean, within, uh, obviously not doing illegal things but paul says i'll do whatever it takes in order that some people might come to know christ that's my goal i'm going to give up whatever rights i can in order that other people would come to know christ and he gives that great example of an athlete olympic athletes give up all kinds of uh things that we just think of as privileges or rights that we have like eating a nice hamburger whenever we want to eat a hamburger and they give up all kinds of stuff like that i'm sure if you talk to paul who's a uh, high-level figure skater. He could tell you all about giving up stuff so that he can be training um, all the time in order to be at the top of his game. So that's 1 Corinthians 8 and 9, and Paul's now transitioning to chapter 10, and he begins to talk more directly to these people that are um, perhaps on the side of having a strong conscience, understanding that food sacrifice to idols is nothing, and maybe have gone a little bit too far in that direction and are getting into territory that is a little dangerous. And Paul is taking time now to talk to them about this. And he starts off at the beginning with a a warning. So let's just read again verses 1 to 4. I want you to know, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from that spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ nevertheless most of them God was not pleased with for they were overthrown in the wilderness so what Paul is trying to establish here he's about to go back into the history of the Israel Israelite nation and he's trying to say look guys here's a nation of people that were God's chosen people and they had privileges And he he very cleverly actually uh, brings those uh, privileges that they had and compares them to the same sort of privileges and same sort of experiences that the Corinthian Christians have been, been through. You see, he relates to baptism, right? He says they were all baptized. And he says, you Corinthian Christians have been baptized into Christ. This is what he's talking about. And then he says, they all drank and ate. And he's he's trying to relate the, to the communion feast that we will have after after I'm finished here, which Star says should be 25 minutes max. So, and so he's he's making a connection. He's saying, "Look, this is the nation of Israel. They were also baptized. They were also chosen by God. You guys have been chosen by God. Their experience was the same." And then he comes down with one of pretty much, I mean, the Bible is full of masterful understatements. This has got to be the greatest of all. He says, nevertheless, most of them with God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. And when he says most, I think I think there was two million people and two made it into the promised land. So that's a bit of an understatement to say that most of them did not make it into the promised land. But he says, nevertheless, God did, did this to all these people. They were They were not allowed to enter the promised land I I pondered whether or not I should spend time on this because this is the kind of um, verses in the Bible we just really don't like to read, these verses about God not allowing people to come to the promised land, making them wander around for 40 years so that the whole nation dies off and the next generation gets in. Or, as we go on, we see he gives us four examples from the the nation's history. He says this, and and so I I was thinking, you know, Should I really spend a lot of time on this? But then I read verse 6, and it says, Now these things took place as examples for us. So I know this is uncomfortable. I I don't like to read these things, but we're going to read them, and we're going to just think for a minute about what happened to the Israelites when they overstepped their freedom. Uh, In order that we might not desire evil as they did, in verse 6. He says, There's four examples he gives. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As as it was written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And uh, this is a reference to the golden calf, if you remember. uh, When they came out of the Promised Land and Moses had gone up to Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments, and I don't know how this happened, but all of a sudden there was a golden calf. They threw some stuff in the fire, and, and this calf popped out, apparently, according to Aaron. And they were worshipping this verse, uh, the, the idea of rose up to play. That's I'm told it's a euphemism for basically having religious orgies or something like that. So it's not a really good situation going on here. And Paul says, don't be idolaters like they were. They made this golden calf. Just, just as God had said, don't make uh, another image other than God. And then in uh, the next one, he says, uh, we must not engage in sexual immorality, as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. Uh, This is when they were, as the Bible says, whoring with the daughters of Moab, uh, worshipping the god Baal. This was a little after the the incident with the golden calf. And 23,000 fell in one day. I I don't remember it was either a plague or something happened and God killed 23,000 of the people there and then he goes on in verse 9 we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents you remember that one they basically started grumbling and said why did you bring us out of Egypt why have you brought us to die in the wilderness this was a common theme with our, their uh, progress through the towards the promised land and uh, God sent serpents among them and I don't think it says the number that died but Moses had to set up the, the rod with a serpent on it. And if you looked at, at that symbol, then you would be saved from the fiery serpent. But otherwise, you would die. And so God was not happy with their grumbling. Or sorry, they're putting Christ to the test. And then in verse 10, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Uh, this was when they wanted to pick a new leader. Do you remember uh, in, the, in the history of Israel, and they started saying, well, why are Moses and Aaron in charge of things? Why, why are you, you guys have brought us out, and we're just going to die in the wilderness. And so they wanted to pick a new leader, and this was again putting God to the test. And a pestilence came upon them that time, and many died. And these are things, as Paul says, happened to them as an example, but they were written for us. For our own instructions so that we might not put God to the test, grumble. I, I know when I read through the story of the history of Israel, my first reaction is to shake my head. Like, they just got out of Israel. They just saw God open the Red Sea. And then they're, like five days later, they're grumbling, we don't have any food. We don't have any drink. And then and then he sends amazing food. It's like miraculous food that just appears on the ground. You don't even have to work for it. It's kind of like us. We just go to the grocery store. It's miraculous. There's food there. It's like that. And they just picked it up. And then like within a week, they're like, well, this is boring. I want something different. And I, you, you shake your head. But then you sort of step back or the, the guy in the back of your head that's kind of you, keeping you in check, he says, yeah, but what, what about you? You you grumble, don't you? And you can just go to the grocery store. You're not actually stuck in the wilderness. You don't actually have an empty skin that has no water in it. You don't actually have any of those things, and you're grumbling. And these things are written down for us as a warning so that we might be careful. And Paul says, therefore, this is verse 12. We're going along in the chapter here. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed. Lest he fall. Be careful. There are things that God is not pleased with if you do them. Now, I'm glad Paul is the man he is because he never leaves us there. He never gives this kind of stern warning and just leaves it at that and then we're all left just fearful and trembling and wondering, like, is God up there with a the big stick just ready to hammer me? He says... No, in verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Be careful, Paul says. You need to be careful of the way you exercise your freedom. But don't worry. God always is there trying to provide you a way of escape. It's always there. You can always take hold of it. You can always grab a hold and get out of the situation that you're finding yourself in. And um, Paul gives them that encouragement. Therefore, flee idolatry, my beloved brothers. Don't just resist. Don't just stand in place. Get away. Run away. Flee idolatry. This is verse 14. So Paul... um, Now... As, just to recap, he's, he's talking about food sacrifice to idols. He's talked about the weaker brother and, and limiting our conscience and for the sake of the weaker brother. And now he's speaking again to the, the one with the strong conscience and he gives a stern warning to them. And he says, look, be careful. The way you are exercising your freedom in Christ, be careful. And now he comes back to his subject at hand. And he br- comes back to this idea of food sacrifice to idols. And he's going to apply this warning that he's given to the specific issue that he's been talking about, this idea of food sacrifice to idols. And so I'm going to read these verses because when I first read them, it was confusing to me what he was saying. And I'll I'll tell you what I mean. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourself. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread... We who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat sacrifices participants in the altar? Why do I, what do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice to idols, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake in the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? So the confusion that I had in my mind with that was Paul has spent two chapters saying, look, idols are nothing. Food sacrificed to idols, it doesn't matter. We, we do know that. This is knowledge that we have. And then he comes here and he says, well, you've got to be careful with food sacrificed to idols because you're participating in this demon worship with the idols. So what's going on here? And, and so I, I read something by William Barclay that, that I think helped me. The idea, and Russ went over this as well, but the idea behind this was you would take your sacrifice to the temple and you would offer your lamb or your goat or whatever it was that you were slaughtering that day. And the priests would get a portion of that. That was the, basically the payment for their service, I guess. The altar would get a portion. You'd burn some token portion of it and then you would take the rest. And sometimes it would be sold in the market if you were a market guy, like if you ran a, a goat stall in the marketplace or whatever. Um, sometimes you would just take that home and you'd have a feast in your house. And sometimes it would be used for a feast in the temple and there would be a big party in the temple. And I believe that's what Paul's talking about. So these Corinthians had decided, well, food sacrificed to idols is nothing. So we can go and we can go to the temple and we can participate in these feasts. And Paul says... I don't think so. I understand that idols are nothing, but you have to realize that behind all the idols in the world are demonic forces. And you participating in the feast, in the temple, you are, in some sense, participating with that kind of worship. And so he says to these Corinthians, you need to be really careful with what you're doing here. In fact, this is one of those things you need to flee from and stay away, get out. Don't go to that kind of thing because you are going to be participating. Just in the same way that when you take the bread and the wine, you are participating. You're saying, I'm part of this body that Christ has on earth. I'm participating in this feast. I'm making myself one with Christ. In the same way you do that, if you're participating in these food, feasts sacrificed to idols, you are doing the same thing with those uh, demonic forces behind them. And that is what I think Paul is trying to say here. Now, for us, I think it's hard for us sometimes to wrap our heads around the idea of idols. Um, I I can't, I mean, I, I've never really seen a temple where uh, Artemis was worshipped. Because, you're well, actually, no, I probably have but it was, a, it was in ruins in uh, Egypt or something like that. Like, that's basically all that's left. There isn't really these temples left anymore where idols are publicly worshipped. Um, I know that there are, there are still pagans around. I met some in Sunnybrook Park once. Um, so there are still people there, and I, I found dead cats down there that were clearly used in this kind of uh, worship. But for the most part... We don't really see this, do we? So so is it relevant at all, in any way, to us? I mean, he's talking to people that it's a completely different culture. Well, I would argue yes, it's extremely relevant. And um, if you've never read it, there's a a book by Tim Keller called Counterfeit Gods. Highly recommend it. It's a great uh, book that deals with this topic. And um, I'll just read you a quick quote from there because he, he describes this really well. He says, the old pagans were not fanciful when they depicted virtually everything as a god. They had sex gods, work gods, war gods, money gods, nation gods, for the simple fact that anything can be a god that rules and serves as a deity in the heart of a person or in the life of a person. For example, physical beauty is a pleasant thing, but if you deify it, or if you make it the most important thing in a person's life, or a culture's life, then you have Aphrodite, not just beauty. You have a people and an entire culture constantly agonizing over appearance, spending inordinate amounts of time and money on it, and foolishly evaluating character on the basis of it. You see what he's saying? These these ancient pagans, as we would call them, heathens, they got it almost better than we do. You see, what we've done is we've continued to have idols all over the place, but we just call them different things. We call them the Montreal Canadiens. Or we call them financial uh, Freedom 55. Financial freedom at 55. Money. But as Paul says in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 5, Covetousness is idolatry. Greed, wanting more, wanting money is idolatry. So we need to be careful as we participate in these things in our society. There is no getting away from money. There is no getting away from uh, beauty products. Well, I guess you could. I don't really use too many. But there is no, <laughs> no getting away. Let's, let's take money. I'm, I'm not going to talk about beauty products. Cause my understanding there is low. There's no getting away from money. You have to have money. You have to, you have to make money. You have to have a house. Otherwise, I mean, I guess you could live on the street and um, have no money, but, but that's not really a good option. So you have to have money. But we need to somehow figure out how is it that we use money so that it doesn't become an idol? How is it that we do that? How do, How do we avoid the situation where there's greed in our hearts for desiring more? And and avoiding the situation where we now become participants in the feasts that our our society is doing. Uh, Always wanting the next best car, the next new phone, whatever it is. Um, Greed can become idolatry. We need to think about that as a church. As we spend our money, we have lots of... uh, God has blessed us with generous people. We need to think about, are we participating in the culture as we spend our money on, whatever we spend our money on? Or are we turning around and using it for a good purpose? Are we, are we participating with Christ in the way that we spend our money? These are hard things to think through. Star said that I had to mention this one. Comfort is a great um, idol. This is one that I certainly struggle with. Do you want to just get home and watch Netflix? when you get home from work instead of doing other things that are more important? Do you want to... Is recreation, comfort, spending time just sort of relaxing, is that your idol? These things are great things. Netflix is great. I mean, you just got all this stuff that you can watch. But it can become an idol. It can become something that's more important than your time with Christ or spending time in the Bible or with your neighbors or whatever it is. Recreation beca- can become the most most important thing in your life. Is this an idol in your life? I'm I'm just sort of skimming the surface here. We don't have time to go in depth into these things, but these are the kinds of things we need to think about carefully. We need to think about how are we participating in our society's way of using these things in our lives. And let's make sure that we are trying to um, to use them in a way that glorifies Christ, as we will see in a couple seconds. So Paul now is transitioning into the end of the matter. And he says in verse 23, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things are built up. You can see he's referencing back to the first chapter, chapter 8, where he says, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. See, for Paul, the, the way that you exercise your freedom is, are you building others up? All things are lawful, but not everything is helpful. Um, seek not only your own good, but the good of your neighbor. He says that in verse uh, 24. Thank you, Russ. Look, Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. We were sitting around the table at our uh, small group this week, and Kim brought up this great story that she saw. I guess it was someone she follows on Instagram. And uh, this lady was with her friend in New York. I think it was New York City. I can't remember. But she was with her friend in a city, and their two husbands were there as well, and they were accosted by a drunk fellow who began to berate the women, calling them extremely foul words. And this lady relates the story. She says, just as I was about ready to kick the guy in the face, um, my friend's husband says, hi, what's your name? And he says, Alan, I'm really sorry that you've been hurt by women in your life but you can't speak to our wives like that. And they gave him a hug, and they went on their way, and the lady was like, and I just was like, wow. I was ready to kick the guy in the face. And then she realized, I had every right to do that. I mean, the guy was being a, I can't say the word he was being, because uh, I'm behind the pulpit right now. <laughs> but he was being that. I have every right to do that. And this friend's husband knew that it didn't matter if he had the right to do that. What mattered was this person who was hurting? Was he going to was he gonna just be another person in this guy's life that was going to push him away and make him think he was worthless? Or was he going to be someone who actually thought about him first and said, yeah, you, you insulted me, but that doesn't matter. What does it matter that I got insulted? I'm going to reach out to you and just be a human to you and introduce myself and give you a hug because it sure seems like you need one. And then Paul, of course, brings it home with this uh, idea of having your neighbor over to dinner. And he says, if your neighbor calls you over and he's talking about the food, you know what, don't even worry about it. But if he thinks it's a problem, go with what he says. See, you see what Paul's doing again and again and again? He's saying, don't focus on yourself. That's the problem that you guys are having with your freedom. You're thinking that the freedom was freedom to do whatever you wanted to do with your own life. It's a wonderful gift that we've been given, freedom in Christ. But freedom is to be exercised for other people. Think of it this way. You have been given the freedom not to be insulted. You have been given the freedom to not insist on your own way. You have been given the freedom to relinquish your rights. Our society is so concerned with the rights that we have as a people. You have been given the freedom in Christ to set aside those rights. Paul goes on at great length about how he had set aside his rights and he has this great one purpose that people, in him setting aside his rights, in him being allowed to be stepped over, or whatever it is, he wants them to know Christ. You see, that's the thing. We've been given this great freedom so that we can exercise it so that other people could experience it. Every single choice that we're making, we've been given this great freedom in Christ. You see, the freedom that we talked about at the beginning, the Lotto six four nine freedom, as i had said to Albert, that's a counterfeit freedom. That's a fake freedom. You know you know what happens when you win the lottery? I don't know the exact statistic, but I believe it's close to 90% of those people have completely ruined their lives in a year. They're, They're destitute. They've spent all the money. They have zero friends left because all their friends wanted some of the money and they did or didn't give them or they gave it to this guy but not this guy. And this idea that, you know, freedom to do whatever you want ends in complete disaster. And yet the Bible says, you have been given great freedom to give up your rights, to give up whatever it is so that other people might come to know Christ. And it doesn't end in disaster. That's the beauty of it. It doesn't end in disaster. It ends in you coming closer to Christ, the most precious, amazing treasure in the universe. That's what happens when you exercise your freedom properly, not for your own benefit, but for the benefit of others. So I encourage you, I encourage myself as well. As Paul says in uh, verse 1 of chapter 11, be imitators of Paul as he is of Christ in this matter. Give up your freedom. Use your freedom so that other people might come to know Christ and you will gain far more than you could ever ask.